All right. There is a uh, verse. <clears throat> There's a verse in Scripture. Uh, I'll wait till everybody's. I'll wait till everybody's done. Um, <clears throat> There's a verse in Scripture, First Timothy chapter four, <clears throat> that has a very stark warning for all of us believers. Um, Paul is telling Timothy, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's from the NASB. Doctrines of demons. That sounds a little, a little far out there, huh? Uh, how, how would Christians actually succumb to doctrines of demons? Well, what, what, what is doctrine? Well, doctrine is actually a set of beliefs uh, that, that is taught within a, within a group. Um, and the doctrine of demons coming into the church should make your hair stand up on the back of your neck and be very vigilant about what's going on. Um, thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Um, There is a growing number of self-proclaimed theologians on social media that have come up with some pretty bizarre doctrine that they claim to be the the truth. Uh, And they they normally couch it as, did you know? You know, and they'd be on like the, the Christian section or the atheist section and they go, did you know? So for example, now, Pay close attention because this is not what I'm saying. This is what those armchair theologians are saying. Did did you know, according to some, that it was the Christians, not the Jewish people, who wrote the Torah? Exactly. Now, if you understand your timeline and when the Torah came and when Christianity uh, uh, emerged, you'll you'll realize how silly that is. Uh, Or they'll say that, did you know that the God of the Bible is not the one true God, but he's just a smaller God in the pantheon of Canaan gods. Oh, okay. Or or did you know that Jesus really didn't die on the cross? Or did you know that we are actually saved, not by God's grace, but by us keeping the Sabbath day? Or did you know that Jesus is, this is the weirdest one, that Jesus is actually the anti-Christ? Did you know that? Folks, that's what is being taught on social media in these little snippets of two minutes or three minute videos where you can't really ever debate or talk things through. You just see it coming at you and you find out that uh, these uh, armchair theologians, what they're saying, and they call themselves ex-evangelicals, which means that they used to be evangelicals, but now they have left the church. Uh, They are saying this because, well, they heard somebody else say it, who got it from somebody else, who got it from a video that they saw on the internet. So of course, it must be true. And they, they say it so strongly and with such confidence. You, you know what floors me? I mean, I, I think that that's tragic. But you know what worries me more? Is that uh, the people of God are being deceived daily by these videos and they're actually buying this, can I say the word crap? Because they are. Christians are actually doubting their faith. They're questioning their faith because, oh, I was never taught this. Do you know why you were never taught this? 
Because it's not true. It's not biblical. And yet they, they buy it, hook, line, and sinker. One of the worst things that I found in my ministry over the years is a lack of knowledge of God's word in the lives of God's people. Now, I may be stepping on toes today, and that's okay, because I love you, and I love serving as your pastor, and it would, it would grieve my heart to know that people in our congregation are just skating by, getting their theology from either me, or a YouTube video, or a TikTok theologian, when you have the Word at your disposal. Like never before in the history of the world, we have access to God's Word in our own language and all of these tools at our fingertips. And yet, there is a dearth of understanding biblical doctrine. Folks, that's the scary part. We must be people of the Word. We must be people who understand that God has revealed Himself through His Word and by listening to other people who don't know what they're talking about, who have not done their own research. And because you haven't done your own research, you just go ahead and, and follow whatever they say because it sounds pr- pretty good. Um, now, that, this is a sermon that I could preach in and of itself. But really, I see this is not something new. Because in Luke chapter 13, we see a thread running through a a lot of different stories that don't seem connected until you realize that it's Jesus standing up for the truth. He's saying, guys, you have bought into a culture of lies about God. You've bought into bad theology. You are buying into myth conceptions, is what I would call them, myth conceptions. Things that sound like they might be true and things that people in this world might say are true. But if you actually look at the doctrine of Scripture, the teachings of Scripture, you will find that they are really just doctrine of demons. So, now I could probably go through months and months talking about all of the different misconceptions. But here we have six right in a row in Luke chapter 13. So buckle up, six points, here we go. The first point, the first myth that, and I don't have uh, anything up on, on the screen, so if you're taking notes, pay attention. Here we go. The first one is, this is a myth, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. Okay? Bad things happen to bad people, and if bad things are happening, that must mean you are a sinner or that you're a bad person. And why would anything bad happen to you if you are a good person? That's a myth. Let's look at the first five verses of chapter 13. Now, there were some people present at that time who told Jesus about these Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, well, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, Jesus said, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is combating a a bad theology in the Jewish religion back then that still exists today. That says if something bad has happened to you, 
you must have done something pretty awful. When Job in the Old Testament was suffering, his friends came to comfort him. And in comforting him, they said, well, you must have sinned, Job. Just confess your sin and God will stop punishing you. Jesus and his disciples were going through the city one day and found a blind man. And and the disciples said, Jesus, uh, this man was born blind. Was that his fault, his own sin, or is that the sin of his parents? And Jesus said, it doesn't work that way. He says, yes, sin does kill, but not in the way that you think here at the Tower of Siloam or uh, the, the Galileans that were bringing their sacrifice and Pilate's guard killed them as they were uh, making their sacrifice. Now, it kills because it began to kill in the Garden of Eden where it tore people away from a life-giving relationship with God. Yes, sin leads to suffering, but not like these guys were presuming. There's no tiered system in God's book where, well, certain sins are down here and they're okay. We'll kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and pretend you didn't do those. But you better not do these sins up here. See, the the, the problem with thinking that direction is twofold. Number one, you will get puffed up because you'll think, well, at least I'm not like Troy because I don't do those things that Troy does. Well, that then is blind. I blinded myself to my own sin and my own need for a Savior by doing so. And, and I've put Troy down because his sin is much more grievous and much more obvious than my sin. Second of all, again, it's, you get this judgmental attitude. When God says that he is the judge, we are the ones to bring the message but he is the only one who can judge the hearts of men. Too often we will begin to judge people when, it, when, when those things happen. And actually the third thing that can happen is, let's say you are being as good as you can, but bad things happen. And all of a sudden you are embroiled in shame and guilt, wondering, God, what have I done that you would punish me like this? Well, that's not the way it works, folks. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' response to these uh, news items back in his day is that, you know what? Everyone has sinned. And if you don't get yourself right with God through repentance, then that will happen to you as well. It's, it's not that these guys were worse than others. We're all sinners, and we all need a Savior, and we all need to come to repentance. Myth number two, God is a cruel God who takes pleasure in punishing people. Let's look at the next several verses here. Then Jesus told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, but found none. So he said to the vine dresser, the gardener, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. So cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? But the vine dresser, the gardener, answered, Sir, leave it alone this year as well until I dig around it and put on manure. And then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Some people, their theology is based on this idea that God is just waiting for you to mess up. Just waiting for you to mess up so he can go, ha, I knew you were evil. I knew you were bad. I was just waiting. I was just waiting. That's not the picture that we get here. The picture that we get here is that God is a patient gardener and will do whatever he can to take sickly plants that are not producing fruit and do whatever he can to help them thrive. 
because that's what kind of God we have. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us understand and, and to cut away the things that, that are not necessary. By the way, Jesus spoke about this very same thing in John chapter 15 when he said that he was the vine and we are the branches. Now the vine is the, 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 the part of the plant that brings up the nutrients in the soil and has the juice to make things grow. But it's on the branches that the fruit grows. So he says, I'm the vine. If you remain in me, you as the branches will produce good fruit. Then he said, my father is the vine dresser, the gardener, who will come around and inspect. And there is a problem with some of our English translations in this first part. Because it's all based on the fact that there are two inspections when you are raising vines, grapes for wine. The first inspection, you go around and you see which fruits are producing and you prune them so that they produce more and which ones are low to the ground, not getting their sunlight, not getting their nutrients, not getting enough moisture, and you lift them up. Now, some of your translations say that the, the, the vine dresser, the father comes and cuts them off. That's not the best translation of that of that verse. The, the best translation as seen in the most of the New Testament is when that Greek word is used, it means to lift up, like to lift up one's eyes or to lift up a fish from the sea or, or to, to lift up somebody who has fallen. To lift up, not to cut off, but to lift up. And so we see there a picture of God being patient and saying in this first, uh, in this first inspection, I want to lift up any of my my branches that are not doing well because I want to do whatever I can to help them. That doesn't sound like a God that's quick to punish, does it? No, it, it, it speaks of a God that is patient, that loves us, that wants to see us grow and be like his son. However, there is a second inspection at the end of the time where Jesus will come back and he will then look at those who have not produced. And it's that point that he will cast them off. That's a different word than what is here. But while we are still here, before Jesus comes back, God is a patient God, a patient gardener that wants to help us. That's why Peter will tell us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God's not slow in keeping his promise to come back, as some people understand slowness, but he is patient with you because he is a God that does not want anyone to perish but he wants everyone to come to repentance. Myth number three. My interpretation of my culture is a better guide, uh, guideline than God's law. Now, let me say that again. My interpretation of what is happening in my time and my culture is a better guideline than God's actual law. Let, let me read the next section. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath... And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself up. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because, well, Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. And then Jesus answered him, You 
hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or untie his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Here's yet another example of Jesus intentionally breaking the traditions of the Jewish leaders. Um, their interpretation in their culture trumped God's law. God's law was called the written Torah. We've, we've talked about this before last year. God's law, his written law, was called the written Torah that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. But then the rabbis got together and they said, you know what, we need to explain what this means to all of you who don't understand it. So they began to make their own writings. It was called the Oral Torah. And in their, even today, their Oral Torah, their interpretation supersedes, is more important than God's actual law. Now you might think, how can somebody get away with that? Well, Christians do it all the time. Oh, I know that the Bible says this, but God, you don't understand my situation because my situation is different. I, I really do love him. And I know he's married to somebody else, but I, I just feel like God is bringing us together. Excuse me? Well, yeah, my interpretation of my life, my circumstance is better, is, is better than God's actual law because God didn't really understand. That's just one example. But how often do we say, I know what the Bible says, but. Or I know what uh, Pastor Trey tells me what the Bible says, but. And how do we get there? Because we really don't know what the Bible says, do we? And we think that we can find some wiggle room. We, we must pay attention to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. See, Jesus would be confronted time after time after time about breaking the Sabbath by healing somebody. And He kept time after time after time saying, Are you kidding me? You, you mean I can't do good on the Sabbath? He says, do you know who's in charge of the Sabbath? Do you realize, he tells them, I am in authority. Not you. Not you. Even in your own life. You're not supposed to be the one in authority. Not if you have made Jesus your Lord. You have submitted to him. And so my interpretation of my culture is a better guideline than God's law is a myth. God knows well, but he wrote that so long ago. He didn't know what was going to happen in the 21st century. Well, your God must be much, much smaller than the God of the Bible who understands things and has laid out eternal principles for us to follow. Number four, myth number four. <clears throat> Ministry has to be big and exciting in order to be effective. Look at verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until the whole batch was leavened. A lot of times we think that unless it's big, unless it's impressive, unless we can find some kind of glory to say, oh, you're that church, that it really isn't worth much because we're not as good as those other people. Ministry doesn't have to be huge, 
by our standards in order for God to have been working behind the scenes and for it to be effective. You see, the mustard seed was not, we know that it's not the smallest seed, but back in Jesus' day, in that uh, time period, in that area, uh, it was one of the smallest seeds that you would uh, plant. And it would grow to be this fairly large uh, bush. I, I found that a thousand seeds go into making eight ounces of mustard. I should have brought mustard in today since I brought ketchup in last week. Then, then we would have understood. A thousand seeds just in an eight-ounce bottle of mustard. But from that one little seed grows a big plant, uh, one of the biggest herbs that would have been cultivated in their uh, culture back then. And Jesus says, just like that, you, it's designed in the seed. It starts out small, but God creates the growth. Same thing with yeast. You don't need a lot. You don't need a lot. You, you don't need to get real clever and say, well, I want a lot of bread, so I'm going to put a lot of yeast in. That's kind of like me a long, long time ago when I was on my own as a bachelor, and I thought it, the more um, dishwashing soap I put in to the dishwasher, the better it would be. You don't need a lot of that. Otherwise, you're cleaning up a lot of that. So Jesus is saying, listen, guys, it really depends upon a willing heart and then God's power, God's spirit to come in. The kingdom of God will be just like this. It'll go against the establishment. It will begin as a grassroots movement. You know, a lot of times we think that our hope is in our government turning around. And praise God if that would happen. And I pray that that will happen. But folks, really, truly, the, the, the times that God's kingdom has grown most is when it, it's been small congregations that have been faithful and hearts are changed at the grassroots level and then something big begins to happen. We sometimes make the mistake of thinking that bigger is better and if we're not preaching to thousands of people, then our ministry doesn't count. If that's where you are in your thinking, I'd invite you to come on Tuesday uh, nights and watch one person with three kids in Awana and see the impact in those three lives uh, as, as people teach the Word of God and explain the Word of God to these kiddos. You know, it can smart, start out small, and that's okay. Fifth myth. That's, whoa, fifth myth. Ready? Merry fifth myth to you. All roads lead to God. Now, you probably know that this is not true. If you've been a Christian for any time, you know what Jesus says about being the way and the truth and the life. Here, here he says it in a different way, starting in verse 22. Then Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. All roads lead to God is, a, is something that a lot of people don't like to hear. Um, back in Jesus' day, they didn't want to hear that. There was an argument. Well, are there going to be many or are there going to be few? Jesus says it really doesn't matter how many. It matters how they get there. That's the most important thing. All roads lead to God is a myth, folks. Uh, John records Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know how you can get around that. 
That seems very exclusive, except when you know that that door will be open to anyone who comes in. But they've got to be there to, to, to be entering in to the door. See, the, only, the, the problem with other religions and philosophies in this world today is that they don't understand the truth about the gravity of our sinful nature. They try to give us a way to be good enough, to, to try, try to even out the score. And so they say all roads lead to God. All religions are essentially the same. I, I want to show you, you got to pay attention here. Because logically, that doesn't make sense. Because all the other religions will tell you that there's a way for you to find goodness, for you to work your way to see God, to be in His favor. Well, if that's what they say, Christianity is 180 degrees different. Because it says we cannot get to God on our own. We need a Savior. So if they are right that every other religion, that all religions are going to lead to God, and the, all you got to do is follow what that religion says, and you can make it to God, then by definition, they have to exclude Christianity. Because Christianity does not tell you that you can get to God on your own. Does that make sense? It, it's, it's almost like either they are correct, and Christianity has to be false, but as soon as Christianity is false, then they're false as well. Because not all roads go there then. If Christianity does lead to God, it's then the only way that does. Because it's the only one that has that exclusive claim by God himself. You see, it's only Christianity that takes care of the sin root in our lives. Because we're told in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And we're told in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus' death and resurrection is necessary. Do you realize that when Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he would go to the cross, he asked God, is there any other way? Folks, if there was another way, how cruel that would have been for the Father to say, oh yeah, yeah, there's a way, there's other ways to get to me, but you go ahead and die. You go ahead and suffer. That doesn't make sense at all. God said there is no other way. Jesus, this is the cup that you, you are to drink. And Jesus went through with it and died on that cross. And three days later, God raised him from the dead in an acceptance of that, uh, of that uh, penalty-paying death so that we might be righteous. All roads lead to God? No. There's only one way. And some people say, well, that sounds very narrow. We didn't come up with that. So somebody actually told me <clears throat> one time we were, we were talking about our faith and I said I was a Christian, I was a pastor. And they said, well, you know what? You guys, th- you think you, you've got the only truth, that you're the only way. And I said, well, you know that we didn't come up with that. Our founder said that. So when we say that, we're not trying to make a claim of better than you. We're just telling you what our guy said. And she goes, oh, I never thought about it that way before. Is it narrow? Yes, but we should not be ashamed of that. Instead of complaining about how narrow the door is, we should be striving to bring as many people through that door as we can, even if it's at one at a time, single file. Amen? All right, uh, Monty, why don't you bring your team on up? I have one more myth that I want to share with us. And this might 
step on some people's toes. <laughs> and, I, and that's okay. Uh, if you want to talk with me about it, I would love to talk with you. Number six, just saying Jesus is Lord does not make you saved. Uh-oh. Now, some of you grew up in a tradition that all you had to do was say, Jesus is Lord. I've confessed him with my mouth. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The, the, the problem with that, understand, that basic understanding is this. It's not just saying the words. There are no magical words that you say because you can say something and not mean it. Can't you? Can you say something and not mean it? Can, can you say something just to get out of uh, uh, trouble? Uh, mom would catch me doing something and she'd say, you apologize to your sister. You say, I'm sorry. So I would say, I'm sorry. Was I? No. Most of the time, no. But I was told to say sorry so I wouldn't get in trouble. Folks, here's what uh, Paul meant in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, when he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Listen to this. When you confess, it means that you get into a mindset that is the exact same as what God has said about your condition. God has said, you are a sinner and, and you deserve punishment. But there is a way to find life and forgiveness through his son. And so to confess with your mouth, to confess means that you're saying the same thing as God. To say, yes, I am in need of a sinner. And to really mean that. Not just to try to get fire insurance so you don't have to go to the bad place when you die. But you really do say, it grieves me that I am apart from God, that I am a sinner. When you confess then with your mouth, that means you're making it very public. It's, it's very hard for me to hear people say, well, my faith is just a personal faith. I, I just kind of keep it to myself because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or, or upset Thanksgiving dinner. Okay? But Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before the Father. Yes, it's, it's one thing to confess, to, to understand what God understands about us. But we need to make that public. And if it's a decision we've made in our heart, but we never really show it at all through any kind of outward show, then we're missing part of what Romans 10.9 means. And what do we confess with our mouth? That Jesus is Savior? No, that Jesus is what? Lord. Which means that if somebody says, well, I, I said the prayer, I invited Jesus into my heart, and yet you look at their life, and they refuse to obey. They refuse to follow. They refuse to allow the Holy Spirit to actually mold them into the image of Jesus. You look at them and say, did you, did, did, did you just want a Savior and not a Lord? Because that's what I believe a lot of people want, is a Savior, but not a Lord. Now, what, what, what do I talk about here? Look, look at the way that Jesus finishes this up in, in verses 25 and following. He says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock, saying, Lord, I've confessed you're my Lord. Lord, 
Lord, open it to us. He will answer you, I don't know where you've come from. Then you will begin to say, no, no, no. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Folks, that's God saying, you said that I was your Lord, but you never made me your Lord. Is salvation a free gift? Absolutely. Do we need to do anything for God to have come down and provided a way for us to have eternal life? No. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. That's the grace that we find at the cross. But as soon as we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we have now entered into what, what I was watching the, um, the, the, uh, the shoebox video where those children are saying that they committed their lives. That's what it means to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you are now on his team, that you are now obedient to him. You wanted a savior, but you didn't feel as strongly about receiving a Lord And so Jesus said, well, then I never knew you. I don't know where you're coming from. Away from me. Now, I know I've stepped on some toes. (laughs) Because I'm willing to bet that out of those six misconceptions, probably some people in here have held on pretty tightly to one or more of them. And that's why it is so important for us to begin to really focus in on biblical doctrine as we teach you. And not just in sermons. But this is why, folks, life groups are important. This is why Bible studies are important. This is why starting in November, we're actually going to have a Sunday school class called Foundations. That if you would like to know what the Bible actually says, what biblical doctrine is, we're going to have a 45-minute class between first and second service that you can come to. And for I don't know how many weeks, but we're going to teach you what the doctrine is. Why? Because there's too many traps that the enemy is laying out for us today. All you got to do is go on YouTube or Facebook or TikTok or one of these social media outlets. All you got to do is listen to your armchair theologian friends and family members, and you're not going to get the truth. Folks, we have to be guardians of the truth. We need to know what the Bible says about God about the Holy Spirit, about the Son of God, about salvation, about eternal life, about the disciplines that we must put into our life. When we don't know, we will make things up or we will allow other people to make things up for us. So let me encourage you. Start watching for those Bible studies, those life groups, and that Sunday school class even, and start to find yourself a mentor who can maybe sit down with you and go through the doctrine of the Bible. If you'd like to throw questions to me from time to time, you know I love to talk. So if you throw them to me, I'd love to engage in a conversation with you. We praise God for His grace and that that salvation is free. And you could ask Jesus into your heart today. You really could. That gift is available for you. And once you do that, God opens up your eyes and you will begin to see where he wants you to go. But where he wants you to go, that involves obedience and making him Lord as well. And that's my prayer for you today. You will find a little card in front of you that says, I accept Jesus. And it goes through a sample prayer of submission to to God, saying, I realize I'm confessing with my mouth that I need a Savior. And I'm accepting you as my Savior. But understand this, that you're also accepting him as your Lord. 
And with that comes a responsibility. So let's together begin to learn what God wants us to know about Him and His plan for our lives. The theology of the Bible, the doctrine, not of demons, but of the deity. Uh, So I guess that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Would you stand with me? Uh, uh, This is a good time, and we're going to finish up with one more song. Um, Monty, we don't have to do all all the verses at all because I've kind of gone a little long. But uh, anyways, let me pray for us and then we will uh, get going. Remember, we need to stack chairs and remember to grab those shoeboxes as you leave today. God, thank you so much for giving us your word and for challenging us. God, we live in a time where people want to tell us wrong things about you. And, And some of us have already bought those wrong things. So God, forgive us when we have not really looked at your word and studied it, when we have just allowed other people to interpret it for us, God, allow us to use the tools that are at our fingertips and grow us stronger in the knowledge of the doctrine of your truth so that when the the, the false teachers come through, we can stand. We can stand firm. God, thank you so much for revealing yourself through your word. Give us a passion for it. Give us a a, a desire and a thirst to know it more and more. And God, let us be able to stand on all the truths of your word, not just the ones that seem the best, because God, you want us to understand all of you. God, thank you so much for uh, giving us this time that we can come together and worship you. May our praise go up to your ears today, from our lips to your ears, from our heart to yours, and be blessed, God, as we close out this service. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.